After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. You know, recently I was... Uh involved in some conversations with some families, uh, couples from our church, and one of the couples was describing and a time in their life when they just went through a severe trial. Uh, their son had been involved in, a, in a, an accident, and his, uh, his life was in the balance. And as they talked about those days, um, I think all of us could resonate with it, just sitting there. And the feeling of helplessness, you recognize that there's absolutely nothing you can do. To, affout, uh, to affect the outcome of what's going to happen uh, to your child. And you just sit and you wait and you pray and you beg God to bring your child through this, tri- through this tribulation. And, and it's just a, a, a time where your, your faith is tested. And you have to make choices. Am I going to get angry with God? Am I going to get bitter with God? Am I going to, to reject Him? Or am I going to, to trust Him? Am I going to throw myself at his feet and, and beg for him to see us through this trial, whatever it may be and however that ending may be? I think many of us have been through times, uh, maybe not exactly like that, or maybe they are similar to that, but where we go through a challenge, we go through a time in our life where we are stressed and we are tested and we are involved in something that it doesn't seem like we can endure it, much less actually come through it and flourish and experience God in new and great ways. Now, many of us have gone through those times. And I think many of us would testify that God does see us through it. Yet at the end of the day, when all is done, the outcome is normally very different than what you imagine. That God does something uh, in a way that we never expect it to happen. I think we as, a, as individuals and as a church, um, as a nation, uh, we are in one of those challenging phases right now, aren't we? I, you know, I, I love history. You guys know that. I probably read more history books than I do theology books, which is probably not what I should do. But anyway, I got to tell you, I, I look at our nation and I think that we have not been this divided, this antagonistic towards one another, uh, this cynical and bitter and angry since the years leading up to, to the Civil War. I mean, it, what, what, I'm, what I'm seeing in our culture is very resonant of, of what I've studied and read in those years preceding that event. We, we are in a very difficult time as a nation from a political perspective, certainly from an economic perspective. Have any of us not felt the effects of inflation right now? I mean, I, I, and as bad as we have it, how much more are, are, is Operation Christmas Child needed for people in other nations? There are other nations like Argentina. They have an inflation rate of 100%. Can you imagine that, of what's going on in our world? And then certainly, uh, I, I don't know about you, but I feel less safe now than I did 30 years ago. 
it, it seems like on a geopolitical perspective, we are in very dangerous times. And so we are coming through these types of these types of times and situations at a national level. Certainly, some of you, I look across the room and I see people who are going through severe tribulation. Some of you, your, your life uh, and people in our church, their lives are in the balance and, and through personal trials. And then <laughs> what about us as a church? I mean, wow. It's been a challenging time these last three. I mean, three years ago, did you expect that we'd be worshiping in a cafeteria? <laughs> None of us saw that coming, right? I mean, God has had us on a journey as a church for several years now, reshaping us and changing us. And I told somebody the other day, I, I almost feel like he's got us in a position where we are like Gideon and uh, the people at the creek, and he's preparing the 300 to go and and do the battle against the Midianites. We're in, we're in some. I don't know what it, what it ends up being. We're gonna all be surprised because he's got us. He's bringing us through something right now, and that's why this series. Then we're beginning this new series in the Book of Joshua called Victorious Faith. It's why it's important. Why it's needed right now for us. And we're gonna we're gonna be in this book off and on. We'll be taking some strategic breaks. Uh, throughout the ministry year. In fact, we're going to take a break where we go through the book of Colossians in the spring. And uh, me and Ben and, uh, and Ransom and Brian Lumshu Chan, all of our churches are going to go through the book of Colossians together at the same time. Uh, but by the end of the summer, next year, we will have made it through the book of Joshua. We will keep coming back to it through different uh, series here. But we need this because this is a story of Israel who has just gone through 40 years in the wilderness. Now, you talk about challenging circumstances. And they've just come through 40 years in the wilderness, and this is the story of God's people experiencing victory through faith in our Lord. And chapter 1 begins by reminding us of the faithfulness of our God. For the next couple of weeks, we're going we're to begin here, and you can imagine how important this theme would be for people who are standing on the brink of something that's going to be momentous, where they are going to be challenged and stretched, maybe way beyond what we are being challenged and stretched, and how much they needed to hear from the outset that our God is faithful. The faithfulness of God in this chapter this morning, we see it in a couple of ways. We see it, first of all, in the man that God chooses to succeed Moses. We see it in God's man. We see it in God's command in verse 2. And then finally this morning, we're going to see his faithfulness through God's promises. Let's start with God's man. Verse 1 says, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, we, let's set some context. Remember uh, a couple of years ago in uh, 2020, 2021, that ministry year, we went through the book of Genesis. You know, a lot of that book, the most about half of that book deals with the guy Abraham. Abraham, the father of faith, the man of faith, who was in Ur of the Chaldees, what, in, what we would call today modern-day Iraq, Iran. And, and God calls him to travel, leave his home, and come to a land that he will show him. And so Abraham does, and he settles in Palestine, and he lives there as a pilgrim in tents. You know, he finally has a son, Isaac. God 
cuts a promise, makes a covenant with him that says, one day, Abraham, your descendants through Isaac are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky, and through your seed, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Abraham and Isaac, Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob ends up having 12 sons. His son and grandsons end up forming what we know as the 12 tribes of Israel. He's the father of the Israeli nation, and they live in Palestine. Of course, the brothers don't care for Joseph too much. Remember, about half the book is dealing with Joseph being sold into slavery in Egypt, and he's sent there. But what his brothers meant for evil, God meant for good. And through time, as he worked his way up in society and the ranks of the government and takes on power, he's in a position to help provide for his family and for the world as a, a drastic famine takes place. Jacob and his sons and the family by now, hundreds of people, end up relocating to Egypt where they prosper under the care of Joseph and the Pharaoh who honors Joseph. But in time, a generation of people arise who did not remember Joseph. And they see all of this, this massive number of Hebrews who have now, Jews who have now multiplied and multiplied, living within their nation, and they end up enslaving the Jews. So for 400 years, the Israelites are in Egypt. They are slaves and captives, and they're groaning before God, crying out to him for deliverance. Until after 400 years, God hears their cry, and he, he raises up a man by the name of Moses. And Moses, around 1440 B.C., if you want some time frames here, right, around 1440 B.C., he comes before Pharaoh, and you remember the story with his staff. He throws it down, it becomes this, this staff representing the power of God through which he does so much. Finally, Pharaoh lets the people go, and they come to the Red Sea. He parts the Red Sea, well, raising that, so think Charlton Heston, right? If you've seen the ten, whatever, and it parts, and they travel through the Red Sea, and then the army of Egypt is destroyed as they too tried to travel. I mean, amazing, amazing stories as Moses leads the children of Israel out of Egypt. And from the beginning of that story, in Exodus, when he begins to lead them out, almost within just the, you know, a few chapters in, we are introduced to this assistant of Moses, a man that he, he picks to help him in different ways, a young man by the name of Joshua, who's in his maybe late 20s, early 30s at most. And so Joshua, in Exodus 24, is with Moses on Mount Sinai, when Moses receives the Ten Commandments and experiences the glory of God. Joshua is with Moses in Exodus 31, when every, you know, on a regular basis, Moses would go into this tent, and the glory of God would descend into this tent, and Moses and God would have a conversation back and forth. And in that glorious moment, who is sitting there observing it? Joshua. It's just so stupendous that when Moses would leave the tent and go about his day, Joshua would stay in the tent because he dug hanging out in that place, right? That was cool. I mean, from the beginning, you see that God has something planned for him. Of course, you know, the children of Israel disobey God. Uh, they don't enter the promised land when they were supposed to. And so God ends up judging that generation, and they wander in the wilderness for 40 years until that 
those parents all die out and their children and grandchildren are going to be the ones who enter the promised land, as we see here in Joshua. Uh, as, as Moses is getting up in years, he begins to be concerned about who's going to take over when I die. Will, will the sheep not have a shepherd? And so in Numbers chapter 27, you see Moses talking to God, asking him this question. And the answer, the Lord says to Moses, take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit, and lay your hands on him. Make him stand before Eleazar, the priest, and the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. And in the succeeding verses, you read how Mo uh, Moses transfers at least some of his authority right then to Joshua. And the people begin to realize that when Moses passes on, it's going to be Joshua who takes over. Now, from a human perspective, consider that. Would you consider how Joshua, he was really actually put into a no-win situation. I mean, it's no-win for this guy. From a human, strictly from a human perspective, this is a lose-lose. I mean, we're seeing it play out right now in the world. I mean, for how long have we been waiting on Prince Charles to become King Charles? I mean, goodness gracious, it's been at least, I mean, I remember the guy back in the, I mean, he's been just sitting there for, you know, 70 years waiting to become king, you know, or whatever almost. And, and, and this guy has to follow Queen Elizabeth, who ruled 70 years and did such a phenomenal, I mean, what a great lady she was. I mean, what a testimony of Christian faith and, and Christian service and being a, a servant of God as she led her country. Don't you know that everything that King Charles does from this point on and says is going to be compared to her? I mean, he's going to be second guest out the wazoo. That's what's going to happen to this guy. Uh, you know, in, in ministry, actually, pastors... Uh, I was taught this back in the, the mid-90s. I had a guy, a pastor, come to me, and, and he said, Jerry, one of the worst things is to be the man behind the man. When you're the pastor who comes in behind a very popular or successful or long-serving pastor, normally that means your name is sacrificial lamb because it doesn't go well. Most of the time, it doesn't even last two years. In fact, the guy who told me that, I was taking over a church in a country town in, you know, up in the Palatka area of Florida, and, and he had made it one year. He was the man behind a guy who, who, was, a, who was a very loved pastor, and, and he had the uh, fortune of dying in the pulpit. So even those who didn't like him now revered him, Right? And his successor, his successor made it one year. And he came and he said, he, he sat down and he says, well, Jerry, and he's an older, he says, good luck, buddy. <laughs> and he was right because they had two sacrificial. One was not enough. They had two of us, right? Being the man behind the man blows. I mean, it is not good. And here's Joshua. He is following the most revered prophet and leader in Jewish history. I mean, the Jews don't call it the law of God. They call it the law of what? Moses. I mean, this is the guy. I mean, yeah. Okay. So here in Joshua, when he's died, Moses, my servant, is dead. And why did he die? Because at a critical point, he, like the rest of Israel, disobeyed God. Uh, he took that staff 
And here they are living in the desert, and, and numerous times he had struck the rock at God's command, and water had been provided for the people. But on this occasion, he's being told to, to speak to the rock. And Moses is angry. He's angry at the people. He's angry at his life. He's fed up with what's going on. And he's angry at God for putting him in this position, I think. And he disobeys God willfully, rebelliously. He doesn't speak to the rock. He strikes it again like he's always done. Now, God gave the water, but he says, partner, your rebellion is going to cost you your life. You will never enter the promised land. And so Moses gets to see it, but he dies and, but even with that, even with having not getting to enter the promised land, he is still revered. The, the, the last words of Deuteronomy are an incredible epitaph for his tombstone if he had had a tombstone. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. This is a man who talked with God had the presence of God in him and around him so much that his face glows for 40 days. I had to put a veil over him. It's so bright. This is the guy who gives us the law of Moses. This is the guy who parts the Red Sea and does all these miraculous things. And this is the guy, as we read in these verses, is called the servant of the Lord. That title, servant of Lord, it only occurs 24 times in the Old Testament. One time, it's given to David. One time, it's used to describe the prophesied Messiah. Oh, 21 times, it's applied to Moses. You're going to read it over and over in the book of Joshua, Moses, the servant of the Lord. But you'll notice that's 23 times, not 24. I use engineers, some of y'all are naughty, we're wondering, Okay. <laughs> Well, the last time, the other time it's used is at the end of Joshua. Interestingly, Joshua, when he dies, is also described as the servant of the Lord. I mean, this is a title that, I mean, this is a title hardly anybody gets. And, and God gives him the title, servant of the Lord. And, and Moses is, yeah, Joshua, I mean, Joshua, he is so overlooked, undervalued. You read, you read Hebrew literature and the Torah and all these things. Joshua's just not, I mean, it's Moses. Everything's Moses or Isaiah or David, not Joshua. I mean, he's just overlooked. He's undervalued, underappreciated. Philip Keller, in his book about Joshua, writes this. He has seldom been given the full credit he deserves, as perhaps the greatest man of faith ever to set foot on the stage of human history. In fact, his entire brilliant career was a straightforward story of simply setting down one foot after another in quiet compliance with the commands of God. Joshua, very similar to Joseph, you'll have a hard time finding an example, an instance of where he sins. Now, of course he sinned. He was a human. But he was a godly man. Yet, we just don't Hardly pay attention to him. He's overlooked. He's undervalued by Jew and Gentile nations alike. And maybe in one respect, that's fitting. Because it foreshadows a more important dismissiveness on the part of Israel, and a part of the Gentile nations. The, the name Joshua comes from the Hebrew word Yahshua. Yahshua, Joshua. When in the New Testament, the Hebrew was used in the Old Testament, the New Testament was written in the Greek language, the Koine Greek of the, 
of the you know, the zero time frame, <laughs> right, whatever century that is. First century and whatnot. Uh, and yeah, okay, whatever. You get the point. <laughs> that is hard to describe, you know. In the Greek of that day, Yeshua, Joshua, the word is Jesus, which translated into English is Jesus. Jesus, Joshua, both are the same. The name means Yahweh saves or Yahweh is our salvation. The thing is, through our Joshua, the greater Joshua, do you know we, each of us has actually a higher honor than servant of the Lord? As, as great as that title was for Moses and for David and for Joshua to receive, we have been given a higher title through our Joshua. He tells us in John chapter 15, Jesus, who's God in the flesh, he rejects the term servant. And instead, he just uses this to describe those who follow him. He says, no longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing. Instead, I call you friends. Isn't it better to be the friend of God? That's even a higher honor than the servant of God. Just as the father ordained Joshua to lead the Israelites into the promised land, the father ordained Jesus, our greater Joshua, through his death on the cross and through his resurrection and ascension, he used him and ordained him to lead all, anyone who commits their life to him into eternal life. Our Joshua is foreshadowed in that first Joshua. We're going to see that a lot over the months ahead. There's God's man. Secondly, we see God's faithfulness in God's command. Verse 2, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. This is yet another example in the scriptures of where God's command at first blush may seem simple, but it is pregnant with meaning and difficulty and uncertainty, and where are we going to end up from here? You know, as we look at this command, I want to suggest to you that there are maybe uh, several gospel applications for us this morning as it comes to the commands of God that he's given to us. First of all, God's commands stretch our faith and they supersede our circumstances. He says in this verse, Moses, my servant, is dead. And now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan. Consider what is in that, and what that's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, twelve words or so. Consider what's in those twelve words. Moses, my servant, is dead. How do you think Joshua and, and by extension, the Israelites are feeling right about then? What do you think is going on inside of their hearts and their minds? Where do you think their emotions are at? How do you think they receive this news that Moses goes up into the mountain and he doesn't come back? He's dead. How do you think they received this? Well, you get an idea of how he received it because over the next few verses, three different times, God has to tell Joshua, hey, hey Joshua, don't be afraid. Be strong and courageous. Why do you think he told Joshua to be strong and courageous? It's because he's petrified. He is, he's filled with anxiety and uncertainty and fear 
over what's going to happen. I mean, not only did they lose Moses, now they're now being commanded to go into the promised land, which is filled with walled cities and strong armies and kings and nations. And they're a bunch of farmers and shepherds, tradesmen. They don't have tanks and Bradleys and artillery. They don't even have trebuchets yet, right? I mean, they're, they're just... It's primitive in many respects. They're not Egypt. They're not Babylon. Not only is it hard to defeat them, how do they even get across the Jordan? I've been at the Jordan when it was in flood stage. You don't cross the Jordan when it's in flood stage. It is, it's like, you know how we saw with the hurricane, the, just the rushing water? That's what it's like. And, and you, how do you walk across that? How do you get across that? A million people with all your cattle and your, I mean... We've all seen these westerns, right, where people are in their wagons, and inevitably, if it's a western and it's a wagons, you know that some of those wagons are toast by the end of the movie because they're going to collapse when they cross a river, right? It happens in every. I mean, that's how bad it is. It's dangerous. You, you can imagine what was going through Joshua's mind and through people's minds and the things that were being said. You can just imagine when they're confronted with this command at this time is this really the time to take this on? The timing kind of seems wrong here, doesn't it? Wouldn't it be better if we just wait until the circumstances are a little more in our favor? Or perhaps it was, hey, this is not what we expected to happen at all. Maybe, maybe we should consider that all of these obstacles are actually God telling us to wait. You can imagine that they would say these kinds of things, right? That's very plausible. Why is it so plausible? Because haven't we said the exact same things? Haven't we even thought these things and said these things over the last 18 months when we picked the worst time in 40 years to do a building program? <laughs> haven't we thought to ourselves, I don't know, I have... Hey, should, we, should we see some of these obstacles? Is this God actually telling us to wait? Did any of you think that? I did. You can imagine what you're thinking. These are, these are normal emotions. and normal. It's normal as human beings to, to be concerned, to be anxious, to think, what is going on? I don't see how this is going to work out. This is not, I mean, we had our plan and our plan did not anticipate supply chain and inflation and a nutty, you know, a pandemic. I mean, we know this isn't what, how it's supposed to be. We, we get what, you know, exactly why God had to tell Joshua, oh, Joshua, be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. And you notice when he tells him to be strong and courageous, he doesn't give him the blueprint of how everything's going to be. He just says, be strong and courageous. We can understand this. Despite the normal emotions and dismay, God says, Joshua, it's time for you and the Israelites to get up and enter into the promised land. It's time for you to move. It's time for you to obey. Church, obeying God's commands and his will for our lives, it is never convenient. <laughs> it's just never convenient. His commands always seem to conflict with our emotions, with our natural desires. How many times does God's commands 
especially when it comes to like areas of sin, it conflicts with our natural desires and our natural wants. Every command of God is a call on our lives to exercise faith and to trust Him. Every command of God is a call on our lives to exercise faith and to trust Him. God's commands, they stretch our faith. They supersede our emotions, our circumstances, even our own natural desires. Secondly, God enables His commands. God enables His commands into the land that I am giving to them. We do not obey God through our own strength and ability. We don't do it that way. It happens through God's power. Now, truthfully, I am dismayed at how I repeatedly attempt to obey God's commands through my own power, my own willpower, my own ability, my own wisdom. You'd think, I, I mean, I've been a Christian for more than 50 years. You would think that I would have learned my lesson by now. But yet, there is not a day that goes by where I, in some way or another, I don't attempt to obey what I know God wants from me. I obey his commands or to fulfill his will, and I do it through my own power or willpower, and every time, I fail miserably. I fail miserably. Behind God's commands is his power, and this power is what enables us to trust him in obedience and, and what you'll discover is that our disobedience is directly tied to our tendency to self-reliance. Every time. When we disobey, we're relying on ourselves. And so the great challenge of the Christian life is to live humbly, walk humbly before God in dependence upon Him, resting and relying solely upon God for his power, for the work to be done, for the commands to be obeyed. And, and church, this is not unique to us. The very first time that we are exposed to Joshua, God is teaching him this lesson. In Exodus chapter 17, they've been out from Egypt for about two and a half months. They're in the desert. Things aren't going off really well to start. You know, people are grumbling, they're complaining, things are happening and to make matters worse, the Amalekites, the nation of Amalek, they discover that there's you know, a million or so people spread out and the weaker people are in the back and they start attacking the back of the wagon train. Like you know, we saw in the Westerns, you know, the, the Native Americans always attack the back, right? That's the weaker part. And, and, and so they begin to attack. And Moses, this is the first time we're introduced to him, he turns to this young man by the name of Joshua who from this point on will be described as Moses' assistant. And he says to uh, Joshua, get the men together, get an army together, and you go out and you attack and you fight Amalek and you stop this from happening. And so Joshua gets the, the men together and they go out to do battle and around Rephidim. And an interesting thing happens. The battle begins. Moses goes and he stands on a hill overlooking the valley. He's got Aaron and a friend by the name of Hur, H-U-R, on the other side, and they're watching the battle. And at the instructions of God, Moses raises the staff of God. And every time he would raise his arms and the staff of God, the Israelites, the, the, the battle would turn in the Israelites' favor, and they would begin to win the battle. But as Moses would get tired holding his arms up, as I mean, he's, he's over 80 years old at this point, right? As his arms start falling the battle would turn and the Amalekites would begin to, to win this. Finally, Aaron and Hur realize what's going on. They sit 
Moses on a rock, and they have him raise his arms. And, and I think Paxton just made a reference to it in, in a prayer or a statement earlier this morning. And they had him raise his arms, and then one got on each side, and they held up his arms throughout the rest of the battle so that they were victorious, and they end up destroying the Amalekites. And that's a cool story. But what's even more interesting is just a, a couple of lines. It's easy to overlook. God then tells Moses, Moses, I want you to build an altar. I want you to bring Joshua over to that altar. I want you to worship me, and I want you to whisper in Joshua's ear something very, very important. It was God who gave us the victory, not you, Joshua. It was God. And I'm wiping Amalekites off the stage of history. What an incredible lesson. Right then, from the get-go, that God was teaching Joshua that to obey his commands, we do it through his power and his ability, that what God commands, he enables. So thirdly, when you think about these commands, not only does it stretch our faith, and not only does God enable those commands, God's commands involve us in his eternal plan, and they lead us to a better future. Verse, the rest of that verse, you and all the people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel, with this command, God is honoring and fulfilling the covenant that he made with Abraham 600 years before. The generation of Israelites that's going to end up inheriting the land and experiencing God's power and presence, which their parents squandered through disobedience. This is the group. And, and over the next many months, we are going to see how God's power comes to these people and how they experience a better future and involvement in his eternal plan through obeying his commands. But for now, what I want you to get and what you want you just kind of tuck away is that the commands God gave the Israelites, the commands that God gives us, they are not meant to make God into some kind of cosmic killjoy. God does not give us commands that are intended to make life harder and more difficult and, you know, that, it, that oh man, life is disappointing because I got to obey what God says. That's not it at all. His commands always lead us into a better future, despite what our emotions may say, despite what our desires and what our natural tendencies, and certainly despite what our circumstances may be screaming to us. Remember what the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God's commands are meant to lead us into eternal life, a better life, not meant to make us miserable. So there's God's man. There's God's commands. We see his faithfulness there. Finally, we see God's faithfulness in his promises Every place that the sole of your feet will tread upon, I've given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Church, this, this study in Joshua presents us 
with example after example after example of God's people obeying God's commands and then experiencing God's power and presence and victory through faith. But you'll notice this faith that they exhibit is not faith in themselves and their abilities. It's not even, certainly it's not faith in faith. How many times do we see that today? Well, I believe. Things are going to, well, why do you, because I believe. Well, what do you believe? Because I believe and believe. Okay? I believe, I believe, I believe. I mean, that's about how much sense it makes. Their faith is very tangible. And the book of Joshua is going to pound this home in one way or another, very subtly sometimes, very obviously at others, that when it comes to faith, victorious faith, it's always grounded in God who is faithfully fulfilling his plans and his promises. We will see this throughout the book of Joseph, or excuse me, of Joshua. And what Moses whispered in Joshua's ear at Rephidim in regards to the Amalekites, it's going to be shouted from mountaintop to mountaintop to mountaintop as the Israelites begin the conquest of the promised land. And it's through God that they will experience this victory. It's God, they realize, who is at work. It is God who is fulfilling his eternal plans and his promises, and he's including them in it. And he's involving them in his eternal plan. Church, that's what he does with us today. And what an honor it is. What a privilege it is. Even when we go through challenging times, as hard as they may be, whether it's at the national, personal, corporate front in our church, to know that these challenging times are here because God is at work. And he's involving us in this work. He's inviting us to obey and to be involved in what he is doing what a privilege it is to be a part of something that is eternal. And these opening verses, God not only commands Joshua to take on the difficult task, he encourages him with promises that are meant to empower Joshua to trust God, to exercise faith and to live by faith and to demonstrate that he's living by faith through obedience. These promises are real. I am going could he give you the land that I've promised to Moses? No man will stand before you. What an incredible promise. Wouldn't you like to hear that if you're the general of the army? No man is going to be able to stand before you. <laughs> I like that promise. Or how about, I will never leave you nor forsake you. What incredible promises. The promises that God gives to the Israelites through Joshua are great. But church, the promises that he gives through our perfect Joshua are even greater. Uh, in Ephesians, or excuse me, in Hebrews chapter 13, we read this. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? This is the promise of God applied to a Christian congregation. Ralph Davis writes, The promise of God abiding his presence in Joshua 1 is also for you and is the solution to the sin of covetousness and discontent, which in turn leads to the great freedom of life without fear. There is nothing more essential for the people of God than to hear their God repeating to them amid all their changing circumstances, 
I will be with you or I will not forsake you. What incredible, powerful words, regardless of what you're going through this morning. Regardless of the, maybe the discouragement, the fear, the anxiety, the worry, the dismay that is in your life, child of God, those of you who are following Christ, you have this promise from our Heavenly Father that He first gave to Joshua in 1400 BC. And in the New Testament, it's applied to us. For I will never leave you nor forsake you, so that it may be said, the Lord is my helper. You know, the first time I heard those verses, those words, it was quoted to me by my dad. I was four, maybe going five, maybe I had turned five. It was a difficult time in the Clem household. My dad had lost his job. There were six of us, three teenagers, one of whom ate for five, right? <laughs> and we never made a lot of money. The daddy never made very much money. We were always, you know, we were right on that line between low middle class and poor, all of their lives. And so you can imagine how traumatic it would be to lose your job. You got a little bit of unemployment. And we're living off of, I mean, my mom could make a chicken go for two meals for six people. It was amazing. We had grits almost every morning. We were talking about grits at small group the other night. We're going to introduce you to grits. They're really good. Okay. Every morning was the same, especially during the school year. And all the times because I was so young, I would get up and I would be up before my siblings, and I would walk into the living room, and there would be my dad, and he would be kneeling at his chair, and he would be praying, or maybe he would be sitting in his chair, depending on what time I got up, and he was reading God's Word. He started his day every morning like that for decades. <laughs> and I would see that as a child. And then my siblings would get up, and they would get ready for school. We'd eat breakfast. They would go off to school. And then my dad would do something. He would get the newspaper out, and he would turn to the want ads. Children, this is when news came on paper. And people had jobs. Many of us had jobs where we threw it at people's houses to see if we could hit it. And we got paid for that. It was a lot of fun. In the, <laughs> in the back of those newspapers were want ads where employers would advertise, hey, we need an employer for this or that. And my dad would sit at the table. He'd open up those want ads and he would circle them and go circle and circle. And then he would finish getting, he would get dressed in some decent clothes. And he'd put the newspaper out under his arm and he would walk out the door. And he'd be gone all day going to try to find a job. This went on month after month. One day, as a little child, I crawled up in my dad's lap, and I said, Daddy, are you ever going to get a job again? Are you ever going to go back to work? And, and my dad, smart enough, realized there was some little childish fears there, and he smiled at me, and he said, Son, you don't have to worry about it. God is going to lead me to the perfect job for our family, and it's going to be wonderful. And then he quoted these words to me, and he had me say it with him several times. For he hath said, I will never leave you. Excuse me, that's not how it said. He said, For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. It was King James Version. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that you may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that you may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. It wasn't the last time I ever heard my dad. Quote that verse to me. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. That's just seared into my memory. I was four or five years old at most. But you know, there's another memory. Shortly after that, well, as a child, it's shortly. I don't know exactly how long it was. But one afternoon, I got up from my nap, 
And I walk to the house and I find my mom in the pantry and she's crying. She's holding a can of food. And of course, as a little child who loves mama, I upset mama, why are you crying? And she turns and she points at the shelf and she says, after the night, we have one can of food left. And she was weeping. You can imagine what was going through her head, mama's, right? The reason why I remember that not, wasn't just because of mama's crying. But that afternoon, my dad walks through the door with a big smile and says, hey, I got a job. And he worked at that company in one way or another for the next 38 years until he died at the age of 80. My dad firmly believed this promise, taught me this promise. It's part of my heritage and legacy that he left me. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. You can have this promise too. You can believe this promise also. God is never going to leave you, Christian. And why is this promise true? Because there was a day when our Lord was on the cross and he turned to the Heavenly Father and he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why is God never going to forsake us? Because he forsook Jesus in our place. Jesus who took on our sins, which deserve to be forsaken. Any righteous, holy God should turn his back on the people who sin against him in such a way. And that's what he did to Jesus. So that at all times, we as his children will never be forsaken and can say, the Lord is my helper. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you that you loved us enough to sacrifice and forsake your own son so that you would never forsake us. Give us hearts filled with gratitude and love and appreciation so that even though we are now called friends, we would crave to be your servants. Lord, we thank you for what you've done for us in Christ. For the one here who doesn't know him, May even today be the beginning of their spiritual journey where they begin to ask important questions about Jesus. Why is it that Jesus had to die on the cross for our sins? May today be the day where they begin to take seriously the destiny of their soul and eternal life. And Father, as a church, as we go through difficult circumstances, may we cling to your promises so that we can obey your commands and rest in you. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.